0: Well, welcome to the first episode of Brettonomics. This is a podcast series brought to you by the Bretton Woods Committee. I'm Nancy Jacqueline and I'll be hosting the series. It's going to explain the institutional framework for international monetary and economic cooperation created in 1944 at the historic Bretton Woods Conference. This framework, as it's been adapted and expanded over the years, underpins the international financial system and the global economy. In each podcast, I'll have a conversation with an expert and we'll try to make the topics engaging and understandable to non-experts interested in learning what these institutions are, why they exist and how they get some important stuff done. Today, our conversation will focus on how international economic relations functioned before the historic Bretton Woods Conference and what therefore led to these significant institutional changes. I'll be talking with Liaquat Ahmed, the Pulitzer Prize winning author of Lords and Finance. This is a wonderful book which looked at the international monetary arrangements in place between the two world wars and the central bankers who were key players in how those arrangements were implemented with some fundamental misjudgments which unfortunately contributed to the Great Depression. Liaquat is also a career investment professional who spent part of his career at a Bretton Woods institution, the World Bank, working in the treasurer's office. Welcome, Liocat.
1: Thank you, Nancy.
0: So before we begin our conversation, let me give a bit of background to the listeners. Much of our conversation today will be about the international monetary system, that is the laws, institutions, and practices within which the foreign exchange markets operate. As we all should know from our daily lives, how these markets operate is essential because they affect the prices set for goods and services in international trade. From the U.S. cars that are exported to the computer chips that are imported for electronic devices, to the cost of a honeymoon in Cancun or study abroad. Every day, millions of businesses and individuals around the world need to know what the value is of their own country's currency relative to that of the foreigner with whom they're dealing and at times also the value of a third currency that may be used for payment, such as the US dollar or the euro or the yen. Well, when the system operates well, currency values should essentially cause a standardized product in any country to cost about the same amount in a local currency anywhere. For example, a McDonald's quarter pounder in Des Moines, Iowa should cost an American the same amount in dollars as a quarter pounder that he or she buys in Beijing or London or Santiago in local currency. If currency values are highly volatile and unpredictable or the values are not really equivalent, this results in misallocations of resources because prices are essentially out of whack And it also makes it very difficult for individuals and businesses to budget and to plan. Well, the first real international monetary system was the gold standard. And it's hard to understand why the Bretton Woods Conference was necessary without understanding the benefits and the flaws of that earlier system. So, Liaka, can you tell us what the gold standard was?
1: Sure. Thank you, Nancy. Uh, So it was first adopted in Great Britain in the early 19th century, but really became only widely adopted in the 1870s by all the major advanced countries. Uh, There were two key elements. The first was rigidly fixed exchange rates. Uh, The value of each currency was immutably fixed in terms of gold, and freely exchangeable into gold. So, for example, in the case of the U.S. dollar, any any U.S. citizen or any foreigner could take their dollars and go to the central bank and get gold in exchange. Um, the, The second element was that each central bank held its international reserves in the form of gold. And that gold was used as backing for the paper currency which it issued. This created a pretty rigid link between international reserves and domestic credit conditions. So why did they adopt such a rigid system? Three reasons. One stable exchange rates facilitates trade and they believed that that was the key to growth secondly since the amount of gold is limited it limited the amount of paper currency that governments could issue thus ensuring stable prices in the long run and thirdly it seemed to work automatically to force countries to live within their means So, for example, if a country's exports fell, for whatever reason, um, and that would create an imbalance between what the country was was exporting and what it was importing, it would lose gold reserves to foreigners. That would cause domestic credit conditions to automatically tighten, which in turn would lead to a fall in spending and eventually a decline in imports to match the fall in exports. Um, The one giant disadvantage of this system was that all other economic objectives were subordinated to the goal of maintaining the exchange rate.
0: Well, and the the effects on domestic economies from this sort of the external constraints obviously could be painful, particularly if you're a deficit country. And it wasn't free from protests in the U.S., for example, from farmers and workers and others that would be weary of the impact of austerity when the necessary adjustments were automatically made. The fact the gold supply itself was limited, I guess, also had a potential constraint on the system. But together, this led many to call the gold standard the golden shackles or the golden handcuffs.
1: Um, You're right, Nancy. Um, While the adjustment mechanism was not totally painless, it was tolerable because prices and wages were flexible, and uh, particularly flexible on the downside. So in downturns, wages could be cut and were cut, Um, and that would reduce the unemployment cost of austerity. In addition, while gold supplies were limited, uh, the gold standard was in effect bailed out by two massive waves of gold discoveries. The first in the 1840s in California and Australia, uh, the second in the 1890s in South Africa, which added enormously to global gold reserves and provided the fuel for the global economy to grow.
0: So it was kind of perking along <laughs> and, uh, and, and uh, functioning as you describe. But what happened with the onset of World War I to the system?
1: Uh, so as with all wars, um, countries spend what they need to um, and borrow what they have to in order to win the war. Uh, predictably, World War I was no different. The American Civil War was no different. <laughs> Uh, The Napoleonic Wars were no different. (laughs) Um, The World War I led to a jump in worldwide inflation. Prices rose anywhere from two to ten times in the major economies. Uh, The gold standard and all the limits it imposed on monetary policy were abandoned. Uh, Only in the US, which had the lowest rise in prices, twofold, did the gold standard remain in force. Um, So the the US dollar remained fixed in terms of gold. All other currencies, um, especially the European currencies, fell. Um, That meant that exchange rates between countries got totally out of whack. In addition, this massive rise in prices eroded the real value of gold reserves around the world. Um, the system became very constraining. Moreover, whatever reserves there were ended up being very badly distributed. Um, European nations went from being the largest creditor nations in the world, creditor countries in the world, to the largest debtors. Um, the US, which greatly benefited from being a supplier of goods and finance during the war, ended up with 60% of the world's gold reserves.
0: So what happened after World War One Was the gold standard restored, or was it just going to be too difficult with all of this um, uh, dislocation and substantial uh, uh, mismatches in exchange rates?
1: You know, ironically, enthusiasm for reestablishing the gold standard after the First World War. Uh, was of anything greater than before the world uh, before the war. Um, so following the wartime inflation and the instability of exchange rates, um, everyone uh, meaning all the major financial officials in the world, saw the gold standard as a panacea for reimposing financial discipline on the world.
0: So then how are all these misaligned exchange rates dealt with?
1: Well, very difficult. Um, and, you know, the, the two main examples or the three main examples were Britain, France and Germany. So Britain had a huge dilemma. Prior to the war, London was the financial capital of the world um, and its currency, the pound, was the preeminent currency in the world. Um, And many countries kept their reserves in pounds in the way they keep them in dollars today. Um, After the war, Britain faced a choice. It could keep its implicit promise to all those holders of sterling and return the pound to gold at the exchange rate that prevailed before the war. Um, The problem with that was it would cause its exports to be overpriced and uncompetitive. The U.S. faced, uh, its price levels went doubled. The the U.K. price level trebled. So it would have still been highly uncompetitive. Um, So it could have adjusted an exchange rate by devaluing by 50% to help its manufacturers and foreigners. Um, But that would have damaged the status of the pound as a reserve currency. So it opted for the former, i.e. to keep its exchange rate constant um, and chose to return to the pre-war exchange rate. The difficulty was that caused years of deflation, which caused severe unemployment in Britain, exacerbated by all of the political difficulties of engineering, a reduction in wages um, after, after Workers had fought a a giant world war. Political conditions in Britain were severely damaged. Other countries, like France, uh, devalued their currency. Uh, The difficulty here was figuring out what was the the new appropriate exchange rate. Uh, In the case of France, it devalued too much causing French goods to be underpriced in world markets. Uh, you hear about artists moving to Paris. Uh, the reason they did it was because the French devalued their currency so much that Paris was an incredibly cheap place um, <laughs> to live. Um, but it caused tension, particularly with the, with the British. Um, the bad distribution of gold reserves was made even worse, because France ended up accumulating 30% of the gold reserves in the world. So between the U.S. with 60% and France with 30%, that left 10% to Britain and Germany. Um, Germany was the worst hit of all European countries. Not only did it suffer from the highest rise in prices during during the World War, uh, price, prices rose 10 times. In the political turmoil after the war, with the country close to revolution, no government had the authority to control spending. The result was hyperinflation, and, it's, and the, the, the mark, the German currency, totally collapsed. Uh, So much so that it it devalued by 40 trillion uh, times, I think. Um, In 1923, it was forced to create a new currency. But having totally destroyed its financial system with no gold reserves uh, left to speak of, uh, it it took a while to reestablish credibility. Um, that meant it had no margin for error and was constrained and had to operate with very severe constraints uh, throughout the 1920s.
0: So that was, I guess the, what, what you're saying is the British and the Germans really were facing enormous austerity. The U.S. wasn't in too bad shape. Uh, France had devalued to, uh, to gain an advantage uh, over everybody else. Uh, But then there was another major strain on post-war economic adjustment, and that was the post-war reparations. How did that affect the economies and exchange rates of the former combatants?
1: So on top of the problems of having to transition to a peacetime footing, uh, the, the Treaty of Versailles, which concluded, which ended the war, imposed... Enormous war reparations on Germany. Uh, the scale of the reparations were totally unrealistic. At first go around, uh, the reparations imposed on Germany amounted to 250% of its pre war GDP, which was ridiculous. It could never have been. That's paid right. That much. How
0: are you going to pay off 200% of the total economic <laughs> yeah. worth of your country?
1: <laughs> Eventually, it negotiated it down to 100%, but that was still enormous. In addition, though not quite so bad, war debts owed by Britain and France to the U.S. were gigantic. They amounted to about 30% of their GDPs. So the combination of these international obligations created an enormous burden on European countries since they had to earn dollars to pay them off, which required even bigger exchange rate changes Compared to pre war policies?
0: So the 20s were clearly a challenging period. Um, There was some recovery going on. Certainly the US was experiencing the roaring 20s. But then the US stock market crash came in 1929, bank failures and related events, and the Great Depression. So, how did the gold standard contribute to the Great Depression?
1: Well, I think you 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 asked the question very well the gold standard was probably not the cause of the great depression uh what it did do is made the recovery very difficult Um, and one is one of the key factors which transformed what might have been just a normal downturn into the great depression uh there were two aspects in particular one um the gold standard always had something of a deflationary bias, which is that the automatic adjustment of the gold standard um, meant that surplus countries should have expansionary monetary policy and deficit countries had to have restrictive monetary policy. Uh, The problem was that surplus countries had a choice and deficit countries had no choice. And that deflationary bias operated with a vengeance during the interwar period, uh, because fearful of reigniting inflation, the U.S. and France, which had, which were accumulating reserves, refused to expand their monetary policy, forcing all of the burden on deficit countries like Britain and Germany.
0: So what was the second aspect of the gold standard that contributed to the depression being so severe? Uh,
1: the second was, um, the, the, gold standard when it was established after the war was what I would call a limping gold standard. It, were, it, it wasn't a fully fledged gold standard, but the reason was that before the war, um, The belief in the stability of exchange rates was so great that when a country had ran a deficit and had to tighten its monetary policy, private capital flows reinforced that by flowing into the country and and providing finance. Uh, The difficulty in the interwar period was that having change their exchange rates so much the credibility that they wouldn't do that again was very small as a consequence the minute a country got into trouble everyone jumped to the conclusion that they were going to devalue again and private capital would flow out rather than flow in and that was a giant problem i mean to give you an example In the middle of the depression, a country like Germany was forced to raise its interest rates from 4% to 12% with unemployment at 25% in order to avoid outflows and hang on to what little gold it had.
0: Yeah. So I I think that tells us something about our inflation today not being so... Terrible, but (laughs) But still, you you don't want to get there, that's for sure. You (laughs) don't want to be there. So what did um, international monetary and economic relations look like after the Depression hit?
1: So the 1930s were actually very different from the 1920s. Uh, The problem in the 1920s was you had these fixed exchange rates and countries had to do all sorts of things to try to maintain them and it wasn't working, in the 1930s, you had the opposite problem. So once the Depression hit, one country after another abandoned fixed exchange rates. Uh, Britain was the first to go in 1931, the U.S. in in 1932, France in 1934. Uh, Those countries leaving the gold standard earliest and devaluing recovered the fastest. So that created a giant incentive to devalue. Uh, and the US was not immune to these tendencies. I mean it wasn't going to watch Britain and France steal a march on its uh, on them in terms of competitiveness. So there's a the story at the time that FDR would sit at breakfast with his advisors um, and quite arbitrarily every morning, Take a new exchange rate change for the dollar that just happened to depreciate a little each day so as to keep U.S. exporters competitive, but not fundamentally shake confidence in the U.S. dollar. The idea of the U.S. president having to sit there and manipulate the exchange rate. Is so right, ridiculous! Right, right, over, <laughs> over
0: his morning eggs uh, with his with right. his friends around, his his treasury secretary around him is really kind of uh, randomly
1: without uh, knowing what ran, he was doing. Random, <laughs> right? Random
0: moves is is, uh, is right. So, so uh, what else happened?
1: And there were there were other country, countries like Germany, which had experienced such high inflation in the early twenties that it, it was terrified of changing its exchange rate at all. Mm -hmm. So in order to deal with the problem of competitive pressures from other countries, it resorted to trade restrictions and about the most severe trade restrictions that you can imagine. Um, so, um, and that caused a sort of response from countries like Britain and France to also use trade restrictions to try to achieve competitive advantages.
0: Yeah, I mean the U.S. also was applying tariffs and and uh, making right. sure Famous. its exporters and we're, yeah. were staying in the game with a yeah. competitive advantage. So, I mean, really, what you're saying is international cooperation and in. in Uh, international monetary and economic affairs was essentially non-existent and that the players viewed the shrinking success in a shrinking world economy as sort of a zero-sum game so each was fighting for its piece of the pie with its competitive currency devaluations and or its trade barriers and you know I view these years really as as the years of mutual destruction in economic relations Um, I think it's also useful uh, when we look at lessons learned from this period, the, the interwar period, to look at the experience of Germany. I mean, as you said, Lequois, the during and after the war, it suffered, suffered from horrible hyperinflation, and that coupled with the burden of the large war debts culminated in the 1923 collapse of the Mark, and the need to impose severe austerity on its population. And just as recovery for Germany was looking possible perhaps, the Great Depression hit, and no more capital was flowing in to support it, and its economy suffered again. So it really experienced 15 years of economic misery. And during that time, every mainstream political movement in Germany had been discredited. So by the summer of 1932, Uh, As we know, the Nazi party became the dominant party in the German legislature. And though one cannot say that resulted solely from the monetary and financial conditions, um, one lesson that can be drawn is that rapid and painful economic adjustment for a population can at the least contribute to political changes with undesirable outcomes. So looking back at this period, the interwar period, what were the lessons from that era that were in the front of uh, uh, in, in front of mind for the negotiators at that Bretton Woods conference in 1944?
1: So I think the designers at Bretton Woods uh, aimed at creating a new set of rules, which uh, tried to uh, use some of the advantages of the gold standard, uh, learn and le- but or, and also learn the lessons from the experience in the interwar period uh, so there was there, there were several elements they were trying to um, uh, they were trying to incorporate first fixed exchange rates so as to avoid the problem of the 1930s which was destructive competitive devaluations but this time round exchange rates were to be adjustable not immutably fixed so that countries with problems in balancing their exports and imports were not forced to put themselves through crippling and deflation. Secondly, they felt the need there had to be a body to police the system of exchange rates so that competitive devaluations did not occur. Thirdly, they were hoping to establish some adjustment between deficit countries and surplus countries so that not all the burden of Um, adjusting was forced on deficit countries. Fourthly, uh, the gold standard had limited the amount of international reserves um, to, to the supply of gold, which turned out to be too constraining. So they were looking for some way of increasing the volume of international reserves in line with growth. Fourthly, fifthly, an increase. They were looking to have a system for providing financing for countries with problems balancing imports and exports, which would allow countries sufficient time to adjust their economies to international conditions. Um, finally, they, they learned from the mistakes of the, of the Versailles treaty, and they avoided that they very explicitly avoided any form of reparations after World War II. Instead, they wanted to put in place a mechanism for providing long-term financing um, of post-war reconstruction, so as to, like, win the peace, Um, hence the World Bank. Finally, they did recognize the need for the rules, rules of the game for international trade, but were less successful um, in trying to ensure, um, put that into place at Bretton Woods.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you, Liakat, for a wonderful history lesson and setting the stage for our podcast series. Uh, what we're going to be looking at in our future podcasts are the three essential areas for international cooperation that were clearly identified at the Bretton Woods conference international monetary affairs, economic development, and international trade. That conference really was an astounding achievement. Uh, With 730 attendees from countries around the world, they reached consequential agreements in a mere 22 days. Now there was a lot of advanced preparation for this conference, but just, this is mind boggling. I'm not sure today we can do so much in so little time. Two organizations were established at Bretton Woods to provide an essential framework for cooperation, the International Monetary Fund and the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the World Bank. While establishing a formal framework for the global trading system, as you said, was not accomplished at Bretton Woods, a commitment to that effort was evident in the charters of both the IMF and the World Bank and their obligations of membership. In our next podcast, we'll look at the core mission of the International Monetary Fund to maintain a sustainable international monetary system. We'll look at what was done and then how it unfolded. Our subsequent podcasts will show how the IMF's mission evolved over time and how additional institutions and political groupings were created and expanded the framework for international monetary and financial cooperation. I hope our listeners will join us in this interesting journey. Thank you again.